You're listening to Precinct 444, a podcast network from the National Law Enforcement Museum. Today we're bringing you an episode from Law and Disorder, where we dive into the world of true crime stories with memorable cases that have lasting effects for law enforcement. On February 28, 1993, after a long investigation, agents from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms arrived at Mount Carmel, a massive compound in the desert outside of Waco, Texas, to serve a search warrant relating to alleged sexual abuse charges and weapons violations committed by the members of the radical religious sect known as the Branch Davidians and their leader, a self-proclaimed messiah who went by the name of David Koresh. The agents were met with gunfire from inside the compound, and by the end of the day, four agents were killed, another 16 were wounded, and six Branch Davidians were killed, two by other Branch Davidians, and the leader, David Koresh, was injured. The initial raid would lead to a 51-day standoff between the Branch Davidians, the FBI, the ATF, the U.S. military, and Texas Rangers that ended in tragedy on April 19, 1993, when Mount Carmel erupted into flames, killing the 86 people that were inside. This is Law and Disorder, and today we are beginning our coverage of the Waco siege, which marks its 30th anniversary this year. Here at the museum, one of our most moving artifacts is an ATF tactical vest worn by Agent Eric Evers on February 28, 1993, and it saved his life when he and fellow agents were met with gunfire as they went to serve that initial warrant at Mount Carmel. The tragedy of the siege at Waco and its aftermath are crucial to the history of law enforcement in America. The 1990s were a tumultuous time for American law enforcement, especially federal law enforcement, and Waco played a significant role in that struggle. Because of this, we really want to make sure that we cover it thoroughly, so we're breaking our coverage into three parts, two of which will be more traditional Law and Disorder episodes. Today's episode is part one, and in it, we will give you the background on the Branch Davidians and their eclectic leader, David Koresh. We will discuss the crimes that they committed, which necessitated the federal investigation and warrants that the ATF attempted to serve on February 28th. The second law and disorder part of this coverage will dive into the 51-day siege. We will look into the communications between David Koresh and federal agents, the interviews that Texas Rangers did with some of the youngest inhabitants of the compound, and then the aftermath of the dramatic and sickening end to the siege on April 19th of 1993. Finally, on a special edition of Icons, we will see the third part of this coverage, where we will tap into our oral history archives and hear from agents who shared what it was like to be in Waco during those 51 days. Now, we're going to turn to the Branch Davidians. The Branch Davidians existed before David Koresh made the organization an infamous household name. The organization had several leaders before David Koresh, and while the group's history did not begin with violence, over time, it became the necessary means for a self-proclaimed prophet to overtake other self-proclaimed prophets and take on a coveted leadership role. To truly understand how David Koresh could convince a group of followers to sacrifice themselves at the hands of federal agents to fulfill a supposed apocalyptic prophecy, it is important to understand the group's ideology their history, and ultimately their crimes, which culminated into their tragic ending. So we're going to take you all the way back to 1935, when Seventh-day Adventist Victor Houtif founded the General Association of Branch Davidian Seventh-day Adventists. Houtif was a Hungarian immigrant, teacher, and devout Seventh-day Adventist. 
His book, The Shepherd's Rod, outlined a series of reforms that he felt were necessary for the Seventh-day Adventist church. Adventist leaders ultimately rejected his ideas, so he and his growing group of followers broke off to create their own offshoot of this religious movement. Their group would come to be known as the Davidians, and many of them decided to live together on a large tract of land outside of Waco, Texas, where they built a community which they called the Mount Carmel Center. Houtif died in 1955, and his wife Florence was the first to rise and take control of the organization. Additionally, one of Houtif's most devoted followers, a man named Benjamin Roden, believed he had received messages from God pertaining to a new direction for the group. He presented these messages to the Davidians in a series of letters and signed them the branch. He claimed that this was a new name that Jesus had taken to reflect a new stage of his work in the heavenly sanctuary. This name is based upon scripture passages primarily found in the book of Revelation. The members who believed more strongly in Rodin's prophecies broke off from the main group and created their own separate organization, which they named Branch Davidians Seventh-day Adventists. This is the first time that we really see them being referred to as Branch Davidians as opposed to simply the Davidians. Two years after her husband's death, Florence Houtif sold the original Mount Carmel Center and used the money to purchase 941 acres of land in Elk, Texas, right outside of Waco. A compound was built on this land, and it would come to be known as the new Mount Carmel Center. This is the Mount Carmel Center where the raid would eventually take place. But Mount Carmel and its leadership of the Branch Davidians would change hands a couple more times before it would become a household name. Florence was not the leader of the Davidians for very long. When her prophecy of apocalyptic events failed to occur on April 22, 1959, Florence stepped down as the leader of the Davidians and transferred the ownership of the new Mount Carmel Center to Benjamin Roden and the group, which had been divided, came back together, now being called more officially the Branch Davidians, at the new Mount Carmel Center. From then on, the compound would simply be called Mount Carmel, and that's how I'm going to be referring to it through the rest of the episode. Benjamin Roden led the Branch Davidians until his death in 1978, when his wife Lois ascended to become the next Davidian prophet at the compound. She continued the spiritual work of her husband, bringing in new followers and maintaining the livelihood of the group at Mount Carmel. And in 1981, a young man named Vernon Howell came to Mount Carmel eager to study biblical prophecy under Lois Roden. Howell was a passionate student, eager to learn from the teachings of former Branch Davidian prophets, while also creating a name for himself in the theological teachings of the sect. He was well-received by members of the commune and engaged in an affair with his mentor and the group's leader, Lois Roden. He was in his early 20s, and she was in her late 60s. He wanted to father a child with her, who he believed would be the chosen one, but this was biologically impossible. By 1983, Howell had amassed his own following of Branch Davidian members, and Lois began allowing him to teach within the compound. His own prophecies were titled The Serpent's Root, and that's a majority of what he was teaching. This caused a great deal of controversy, especially where Lois's son George was concerned. He saw himself as the group's next leader and viewed Howell, who by now had adopted the name David Koresh, as an interloper. When Lois Roden died in 1986, her son George ascended to that position of prophet, 
and the existing rift of loyalty between members of the sect evolved into a very destructive power struggle between Howell and Roden, as both men saw themselves as the rightful heir to the role of prophet. And this is where the violence truly begins. Roden would regularly try to test Koresh's legitimacy as a prophet. In a key incident that occurred in 1987, Roden exhumed the body of a deceased Branch Davidian from the group's cemetery. Roden claimed that he was simply moving the cemetery, but Koresh argued that Roden had issued a challenge to resurrect the body, asserting that whoever resurrected the body would be the new leader of the sect. Koresh attempted to notify authorities and file charges against Roden for the illegal exhumation of a corpse, but was told he would have to show proof of the crime that was committed say, a photograph of the corpse, which he couldn't provide outright. So he seized the opportunity to seek this criminal prosecution of Rodin and returned to Mount Carmel with seven armed followers, allegedly attempting to get that photographic proof of the exhumation. Rodin soon discovered Koresh's armed group and a gunfight broke out. When the sheriff arrived, Rodin had been pinned down behind a tree and was suffering from minor gunshot wounds. As a result of the incident, Koresh and seven armed followers were charged with attempted murder. The charges went to trial, and Koresh explained that he went to Mount Carmel to uncover evidence of the criminal disturbance of a corpse by Rodin. The seven followers were acquitted, and Koresh's case was declared a mistrial. For a moment, there was a breath of calm at Mount Carmel after this trial. Koresh announced that God had instructed him to marry Branch Davidian woman named Rachel Jones, and it created a rather celebratory or at least peaceful atmosphere. Then suddenly, a fire broke out and destroyed a $500,000 administration building on the property. Naturally, Rodin blamed Koresh for the fire, but Koresh replied that no man set that fire, and rather it was a judgment of God. This reignited the power struggle between Koresh and Rodin, and the latter, claiming that he had the support of the majority of the sect, forced Koresh and about 25 of his followers at gunpoint to leave the Mount Carmel property. Koresh and his followers set up a camp in Palestine, Texas, which lay about 90 miles from Waco. Remember that name. They lived in the primitive conditions for about two years, their primary shelters fashioned from buses or just camping in tents. While living in the Palestine camp, Koresh continued to recruit new followers, mainly from California, the United Kingdom, Australia, and Israel. And Israel was a crucial location, not only for David Koresh and his progression as the leader of the Branch Davidian movement, but one of the main reasons why David Koresh went to Israel to recruit followers goes all the way back to that founder of the Davidian movement, author of The Shepherd's Rod, Victor Houtif. Houtif wanted to act as God's implement, which, in spirituality speak, essentially means he would act as a physical embodiment of God. Houtif's ultimate goal was to establish a Davidic kingdom in Palestine, which is ironic, considering that David Koresh and his followers had been roughing it in Palestine, Texas, for about two years. But regardless, David Koresh wanted to continue Houtif's role as God's implement and fulfill that goal that the founder had set out to achieve— which was widely considered by people in many faiths as the Holy Land. But while traveling in Israel, Koresh claimed that he had a few enlightening visions. The first was a vision that he was the modern-day Cyrus, Cyrus being Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia from 559 to 530 BC, who conquered Babylon and liberated the Jews who were being held captive there. Cyrus the Great is considered to be a benevolent conqueror, 
and he's highly regarded in Hebrew scripture, not only for his liberation of the Jews in Babylon, but the fact that he helped them to return to the promised land of Israel and construct the second temple in Jerusalem. So where does Koresh see this parallel? As the modern Cyrus, he sees himself as liberating these branch Davidians and returning them to their promised land, which at the time he initially believed was Palestine. And this is the country of Palestine, not Palestine, Texas. And the name Koresh is actually Cyrus in Hebrew. The David in David Koresh is tied to the biblical King David. But then David Koresh has another revelation. He's now convinced that Palestine and Israel is just a metaphor as well, and he would not find his martyrdom there. Instead, he would find his martyrdom in the United States, specifically at Mount Carmel, the compound he and his followers were forced away from at gunpoint by George Roden in 1989. Essentially, he considered Waco and the compound for his followers to be the Jerusalem that Cyrus returned the Jews he liberated. For Koresh... Waco was the Davidic kingdom. And eventually, David Koresh would return with his followers to Mount Carmel. In 1989, Rodin murdered a man named Wayman Dale Adair with an axe blow to the skull after Adair stated his belief that he himself was the true messiah. Rodin claimed the man had been sent by Koresh to kill him, and Rodin was arrested and ultimately judged to be insane. He was confined to a psychiatric hospital in Big Spring, Texas. And since Roden owed thousands of dollars in unpaid taxes on the Mount Carmel Center, Koresh and his followers were able to raise the money and reclaim the property for themselves. From the psychiatric hospital, Roden continued to harass Koresh and his followers by filing legal papers while he was imprisoned. But when Koresh and his followers reclaimed the Mount Carmel Center, they discovered that the compound had been left in a rather dilapidated state. The former tenants who had rented the compound from Roden had left behind a meth lab, which Koresh reported to local authorities. But soon, there would be investigations against David Koresh and the Branch Davidians he led. This entire time, Koresh is continuing his ministry with his followers, writing his revelations, delivering sermons, and additionally, he is taking on multiple wives. In what he would refer to as the Doctrine of the House of David, he, as the leader, was allowed to lead marriages between himself and women of the sect, regardless of whether they were single or legally married to someone else. And mind you, these are spiritual marriages. They're not legal marriages. He is legally married to Rachel, who he married back in the 1980s, but the rest of his marriages are simply spiritual marriages and not recognized by the state of Texas. He based this doctrine on one of his supposed revelations, which involved the creation of 24 children by Koresh with chosen women in the sect. These children would grow up to become the 24 ruling elders over the millennium after the return of Christ. And it's good to remember here that the Branch Davidians were a religious group whose beliefs were deeply rooted in the impending apocalypse, one who prepared for the end of days, which is outlined in the book of Revelation, and ultimately involved the return of Christ and salvation for believers. These women reportedly were chosen through this doctrine, and it included at least one underage girl named Michelle Jones, the younger sister of Koresh's legal wife, Rachel, and the daughter of lifelong Branch Davidians, Perry and Mary Bell Jones. This led to allegations of sexual misconduct and physical abuse by Koresh against women and children in the group. These allegations were mostly made by ex-members who had left the sect, and it launched an investigation by Texas Child Protection Services in 1992. 
The six-month investigation of sexual abuse allegations failed to turn up any evidence, and this is likely due to the Branch Davidians concealing the fact of the spiritual marriage of Koresh to Michelle. They instead assigned a surrogate husband, fellow Branch Davidian David Thibodeau, to the girl for the sake of appearances. But regarding the allegations of physical abuse, the evidence is less certain. In one widely reported incident that led to the physical abuse allegations, ex-members claimed that Koresh had become irritated with the cries of his son Cyrus and spanked the child severely for several minutes on three consecutive visits to the child's bedroom. In a second report, a man involved in a custody battle with a member of the sect visited the Mount Carmel Center and claimed to have seen Koresh beating a young boy with a stick while he was there. The allegations of child abuse largely stem from the detractors and ex-members, and allegations ultimately led to the federal government to begin their investigations on David Koresh and the Branch Davidians during the investigation of weapons violations that would come to surface. And those weapons violations would come to surface in June of 1992, when a postal worker informed the McLennan County Sheriff that he believed he had delivered a number of explosives to an ammunition and gun store named Magbag. And this was being operated by the Branch Davidians. The business helped to sustain the livelihood of the Branch Davidians, who were living in Mount Carmel as a commune. The suspicious deliveries between the store and Mount Carmel continued, and the postal worker reported that when he would arrive to the compound, he saw what he believed to be occupied observation posts. In the affidavit that ultimately led to the warrants served by the ATF on February 28th, it states that this postal worker believed there were armed personnel at these observation posts. Additionally, in May and June of 1992, the McLennan County Sheriff's Office reported that they had been notified that these deliveries consisted of two cases of inert grenades, black gunpowder, 90 pounds of powdered aluminum metal, and 30 to 40 cardboard tubes. Very suspicious. An additional shipment of 60 AR-15 M16 magazines was what initiated the Sheriff's Office to contact the ATF. The Sheriff is quoted saying, I've been involved in many cases where defendants, following a relatively simple process, convert AR-15 semi-automatic rifles to fully automatic rifles of the nature of M16. This type of weapon augmentation is highly illegal and justified ATF's involvement in the case. In November of 1992, a farmer living near the compound reported that he heard what sounded like machine gunfire coming from Mount Carmel. The farmer, who was a U.S. Army veteran and believed himself to be rather familiar with machine guns, believed he heard fire from M16 rifles and a 50 caliber machine gun. The affidavit corroborated this account with interviews and sales documents from multiple gun and ammunition stores where representatives from Magbag had purchased weapons of that description, which included 45 AR-15 upper receivers and 5 M16 upper receivers, which these parts are legally considered firearms. While the noise complaint and purchase of these firearms in and of themselves were not illegal, when paired with the suspicious deliveries, they created enough suspicion to warrant further investigation and a search of the compound by the ATF, especially when considering that David Koresh had been investigated for allegations of sexual and physical abuse. It felt justified that investigators at least take a look around the compound. A 1993 Justice Department report and several legal scholars cite that while the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, or ATF, had no legal jurisdiction in the matter of child protection or any of the sexual abuse allegations, 
that these accounts on top of the investigation into the weapons violation were inserted by the ATF to the affidavit in order to inflame the case against Koresh. And ultimately, it could assist in the moving of that particular investigation forward to be investigated by proper agencies. For example, the account of former Branch Davidian Janine Buns claims that Koresh had fathered 15 children with various women and girls in the sect, and that is reproduced in the ATF affidavit that secured the search warrant. Eventually, the ATF obtained a search warrant for Mount Carmel and a number of arrest warrants for David Koresh and a few specific followers on weapons charges based on the sheer number of firearms they'd accumulated in recent months. Their investigation was focused on firearm violations, but also cited a request for possible assistance by the DEA and Department of Defense, citing a drug connection and suspicion of a meth lab that may have been located on the compound. This was mentioned in interviews by ex-members, mentioning conversations between Branch Davidians about how drug trafficking was a desirable way to raise money and the connection of multiple current members to prior drug involvements. This was also due to the fact that Branch Davidians had recently purchased a suspicious amount of glassware, chemicals, and instruments necessary in the creation of meth, and flyovers of the compound with thermal detectors also found a hot spot within the compound that would hint to the presence of a meth lab. The raid and subsequent serving of the warrants was originally scheduled for March 1st of 1993, but when the newspaper the Waco Tribune Herald published the first article in their series titled The Sinful Messiah, which was a deep dive into David Koresh's history and the Branch Davidians on February 27th, despite ATF's request to hold the story until the investigation had progressed, agents decided to move the raid up a day. Agents were initially hoping to arrest Koresh when he was away from the compound. However, they acted on a tip that Koresh rarely left the compound and decided that they could just get him there instead. Despite being informed that the Branch Davidians knew a raid was coming, the ATF commander ordered that it go ahead. Even though their plan really depended on reaching the compound without the Branch Davidians being armed and prepared— any advantage of surprise was lost when a KWTX-TV reporter, who had been tipped off about the raid, asked for directions from a U.S. Postal Service mail carrier who happened to be Koresh's brother-in-law. Koresh had also told an undercover ATF agent named Robert Rodriguez that he and his followers knew a raid was imminent. Rodriguez had infiltrated the Branch Davidians as part of the ATF's investigation, and he was astonished to find that his cover had been blown. He was even more surprised that he was able to make an excuse and leave the compound. When he was later asked what the Branch Davidians had been doing when he left the compound, Rodriguez replied that they were praying. Branch Davidian survivors have written since the raid that Koresh ordered specific male followers to begin arming themselves and taking up defensive positions in the compound, while the women and children were told to take cover in their rooms. Koresh told them that he would try to speak to the agents, and whatever happened next would depend on the agents' intentions at the compound. When the ATF arrived at 9.45 a.m. in a convoy of civilian vehicles containing uniformed personnel in SWAT-style tactical gear, shots were almost immediately fired. The first ATF casualty was an agent who made it to the west side of the building before he was wounded. Agents took cover, and helicopters began sweeping low to create the diversion. Shots were fired by Branch Davidians toward the helicopters, and they hit. None of the occupants of the helicopters were injured, but it did cause the pilots to pull the helicopters away from the compound and land. 
Agents on both sides of the compound attempted to secure ladders and enter from windows where they believed, one, David Koresh's room was located on the west side of the compound, and two, where weapons were stored in an armory on the east side of the compound. But on both sides, they were fired upon as they crouched near those windows. On the west side, one agent was killed and another wounded, and eventually the agents entered the armory on the east side but were met with a hail of bullets from Branch Davidians. As they attempted to escape, bullets rained down from both sides, and agents found cover behind Branch Davidian vehicles. Another agent was killed as ATF agents fought back toward a Branch Davidian who was firing upon agents from atop a water tower. Forty-five minutes into the raid, federal agents were running out of ammunition. And while the gunfire was slowing down, it essentially went on for over two hours. Eventually, Sheriff Lieutenant Lynch of the McLennan County Sheriff's Department was able to get in contact with the ATF and help negotiate a ceasefire that went into effect at 11.30 a.m. In all, four ATF agents had been killed during the firefight. Their names were Steve Willis, Robert Williams, Todd McKeon, and Conway Charles LeBlue. Their names are engraved on the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial here in Washington, D.C. Another 16 agents were also injured, and after the ceasefire, the Branch Davidians allowed the ATF dead and wounded to be evacuated and held their fire during the ATF's retreat. Five Branch Davidians were also killed in this initial raid, Winston Blake, Peter Grant, Peter Hipsman, Perry Jones, and Jaden Wendell. Two were killed at the hands of Branch Davidians after having been wounded. Their bodies were buried on the grounds. And nearly six hours after the 11.30 a.m. ceasefire, Michael Schroeder was shot by ATF agents, who alleged that he fired a pistol at agents as he attempted to re-enter the compound with Woodrow Kenrick and Norman Allison. The initial raid showed that the Branch Davidians were not going to leave Mount Carmel peacefully or allow federal agents into the compound peacefully, and the true standoff was only beginning. In the next Waco installment of Law and Disorder, we will dive into the 51-day siege and learn what it was like inside the compound for the Branch Davidians and outside of the compound with investigators who now not only want to seek justice for those original crimes that have been committed, but also to ensure that their fallen fellow agents had not died in vain. Remember to come back to Precinct 444 in the coming weeks for the second and third parts of our Waco coverage, and we hope that you will check out some of our other shows on the network, available wherever you find your podcasts. Additionally, I'd like to thank our producer, Chris Mitchell, who keeps Precinct 444 going. I'd also like to thank all of you for listening, and we hope to see you back here very soon at the Precinct. Please subscribe to Precinct 444 on your favorite podcasting platform to stay connected and to receive our latest content as soon as it drops. We would love to hear from you. Send in your questions, comments, and feedback to precinct444 at nleomf.org. You can help us make our content even better. The National Law Enforcement Museum is located at 444 East Street Northwest in Washington, D.C., and is dedicated to telling the story of American law enforcement. We expand and enrich the relationship between law enforcement and the community through educational journeys, immersive exhibitions, and insightful programs. Find us online at lawenforcementmuseum.org and stay tuned for more podcast content from Precinct 444. Until next time, stay safe. We'll see you at the precinct. Thank you.